You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. On a cool spring evening in 1989, a group of over 25 teenagers were hanging around Central Park. And you know, at the time, some were being malicious and harassing folks in the park, and some were even harming people intentionally. And that same night in 1989, a 28-year-old woman who had been out jogging in the park was beaten and raped and subsequently laid up in a coma for two weeks. And the city of New York was in a state of panic. And in an effort to construct and manipulate the narrative, the New York Police Department will go on to arrest five teenage boys, coerce them against one another, dictate their stories, and convince them that they were the ones that committed this atrocious act. They were all imprisoned, even though their stories did not match one another, were not accurate portrayals of what actually happened, nor were they anywhere near the scene of the crime when it occurred. And the boys would go on to spend between 6 and 13 years in prison. And in 2002, a man who was serving a prison sentence of 33 years to life got word to the district attorney's office that it was he and he alone who beat and sexually assaulted this woman. The judge looked over the case, agreed, and after some procedures and discussions, ended up letting the men that were still in jail go free. And in 2012, all five defendants would go on to sue the city of New York for malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, and emotional distress for a total of $41 million. Five men combined 30 years of their life that they are not getting back for a crime they did not commit. So my question to you, was justice done? A wrong was attempted to be righted, and significant financial compensation was allotted, the assailant was found out, and he would continue his prison sentence. All those things, I think, most of us would probably say are things that should be done. But the question remains, was justice done? And that begs the question, what is justice? What does justice look like? And in a broken world, the world that we live in, is justice even possible? I'll go ahead and tell you for now the the famous story of the Central Park Five. The question to the answer, was justice done, is I don't know. And I don't seek to provide an answer. I just want us to wrestle with the tension because it is most certainly there. Over the past eight weeks, we have looked at what it means to be children of God as we think about the Scripture and stepping into the story of Scripture, as we think about prayer and being in an intimate relationship with the Father, and then being embedded and tethered to the life of a new family that God is creating. We've looked at what it means to be a servant of God, investing our lives into the poor and margins of our city and inviting them into the family of God, as well as opening our homes and practicing the front door of Christianity, which is hospitality. We've talked about what it means to be missionaries to our city, that we are commissioned and sent out to lost people, and that the church exists for the community, and that all of us are all in. There is no JV and varsity team of believers. There is only a follower of Jesus empowered by the Spirit for love and good works. And now, for the next two weeks, we are talking about our final identity pillar, what it means to be citizens of another kingdom while being citizens in this one. 
And part of what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God is to be committed to biblical justice. There has been a lot of discussion this past year over justice, social justice, racial justice, justice in the public square, and those are critical conversations to be had, and I want to acknowledge that I am stepping into the deep end of the pool in a sermon about justice. But I also want to acknowledge I'm only stepping into the pool because it's the pool of Scripture. It's the story of the world. Justice is not something man-made. It is actually at the very heart of God. So before we jump in, let's just take a step back and look at the macro view. Here's the thing about justice. Everybody wants it. We just all have different ideas of what it means and what it is. The popular terminology of cancel culture proves it as such. I mean, if you say X, you are terminated. If you do Y, you are finished. It is its own form of justice. Punishment for the guilty, freedom for the innocent, the good and the bad, the evil and the virtuous. And whatever your worldview is, whatever your cultural background is, whatever your political affiliation or parental upbringing is, you have an innate sense of justice that lies within you. The idea that there are things that are inherently good and inherently evil, inherently just where people flourish and thrive, and inherently unjust where only some people flourish and thrive. And if I were to do a quick exercise and give you 30 seconds to think about what it is in your life and what it is in this world that makes you fume with the felt emotion of anger and sorrow, that, in essence, would prove that you care about justice and, conversely, injustice. You believe, based on the very fact that you are human, in a just society of some sort, in a just life of some kind. And being treated unjustly or unfairly or unequally doesn't sit well with you. I imagine some of you could think of very vivid examples right now. We can objectively say that there are situations and circumstances where people are not inherently thriving in the world. And the issues of justice and injustice are overwhelming. I mean, they are massive. They are both happening at a global scale around the world and in a localized setting in our city. I shared a few weeks back about the foster care system numbers in our state. But what about potential sex trafficking that happens right under our nose off of I-40? Or better yet, the porn industry at large, which if you didn't know, pornography is more often than not systemic sex trafficking, specifically but not exclusively of underage kids. Or what about the abortion industry? The annual revenue of Planned Parenthood, which is the overwhelming producer of systemic abortions in this country, is $1.3 billion. It is a business masquerading as healthcare. Or consider the injustice toward women around the world. Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wooden wrote a seminal book entitled Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide. And here's what they said. More girls were killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than men killed in all wars in the 20th century. More girls are killed in this routine gender side in any one decade than people were slaughtered in all the genocides of the 20th century. Or what about this? The equivalent of five jumbo jets worth of women die in labor each day. 
and lifetime risk of maternal death is 1,000 times higher in a poor country than in the West. That should be an international scandal, and we barely blink an eye at it. Or what about the fact that in this neighborhood alone, the number one call to the KPD is domestic violence related? What about the gross inequities across ethnic lines, wealth gap, educational opportunities, redlining? And I've probably barely scratched the surface of the litany of pain points in our world, and I've probably not addressed 10% of them represented in this room. And the result of injustice is always objectification. Women who are sexualized, children who are abandoned or mistreated or abused or forced into labor, the poor whose dignity is stripped and discarded with prejudices, the foreigner, at least in this country, whose opportunities for flourishing have great barriers against them, ethnic minorities who have been exploited financially, physically, emotionally, and sexually in this country because of lust and greed. The result is always objectification. The product of injustice is that people become products. The product of injustice is that people become products. Injustice is a gospel issue because image bearing is a gospel issue. We care about justice, meaning we care about the equitable treatment of individuals based on their inherent worth and value. We care about justice because at the heart of the gospel is justice. Our text today is out of Psalms because the psalmist gives us language for our experience of a broken world. They describe what it means for us to experience the world around us with honesty and openness. So I want to frame up a theology of justice and then talk about an ethic of justice. So on page one of scripture, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them Male and female, he created them. By our very nature, we reflect God. By our very humanity, we say something significant and marvelous about God. We are not made in the image of rocks or in the image of clouds or in the image of anything else or anyone else. We are made in the image of Yahweh, of God himself. No other creature is made like this. No other being is made in the image of God. And the bedrock of the Christian faith is that all humans are equal before God and thus are commanded to treat one another with full and equal dignity. But if you turn the page, you know the story evolves. Sin enters the picture and thus the idea that we would treat one another with equal fairness and full dignity based on the belief that we are made in the image of God goes out the door. And we know this because the first recorded sin in the scripture after the rebellion in the garden of Adam and Eve is Cain and Abel. Cain, brother of Abel, unnerved and annoyed that his brother's offering to God is acceptable, decides to take matters into his own hands and take the life of his brother. Isn't it amazing how quickly and rapidly we move in the pages of Scripture from the mandate to care for and nurture creation to completely wiping it out? And we continue to turn the pages and see in Genesis 12 that God is fashioning together a new family, starting with a man called Abram. And this is the call that he gives Abram, or Abraham as he is later called in Genesis 18. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him 
to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what is promised to him. Now, before we go any further, a quick analysis on a few words. The Hebrew word for righteousness is sadaka. Sadaka refers to the ethical standard of right relationships between individuals. It is treating others equally as the image of God with inherent dignity. That's what the Hebrew word for righteousness means. All right? The Hebrew word for justice is most widely known in the scriptures as, mish, as mishpat. Mishpat it most commonly refers to this idea of restorative justice. It is not merely punishment against wrongdoing or charity for needy folks. It actually means something much more than that. It's about seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and coming alongside them. It is advocacy at the expense of self. It is actually disadvantaging oneself for the betterment of someone else. That's what mishpat means. Now, said another way, if everyone was living righteously or with sadaka, we would not need mishpat or justice. We would not need justice because people would act righteous, but that isn't the world we inhabit. And in the scriptures, specifically justice or mishpat consistently comes up in reference to what is called the quartet of the vulnerable. The poor, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. And in agrarian societies, which is the world of the ancient Near East, these are the most vulnerable people because they had the least amount of status in society, and thus they were the most susceptible to die if anything out of the ordinary happened, like a famine or social unrest or military clash or whatnot. So when we say justice and we say righteousness, this is what we are talking about. So the call of the people of God would be to do justice and act righteously. And if you know the story, you know that the people of God were once oppressed by the Egyptians. And so God, in his kindness, rescues them out of Egypt and frees them. But instead of practicing justice and righteousness, they turn around and do exactly what the Egyptians have done to them, to other people. The oppressed become the oppressor. The unjustly treated slaves become the unjustly ruling masters. And in the midst of all this, we have a list of major and minor prophets in the Old Testament, people sent from God to be the voice of God to the people of God, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, you know, all those clean white pages that we don't like to read and don't deem important. Each one of these unique and yet each one delivering a message to the people of God. You are not caring about justice and righteousness. Therefore, you are deemed wicked. You have advantaged yourself at the expense of someone else, notably those who are vulnerable. This is the story of scripture. This is the story of the people of God. And then in a wild turn of events, justice moves from being an action of the people of God to being God himself. Stepping out of time and space, the very righteousness of God moves into the community. God, embodied with arms and legs and flesh and blood, shows what true righteousness and actual justice look like. And he does this in the most unusual day, unusual way. He does it by undoing the preconceived idea of what it means to have power. 
Now, if you think of the scriptures that describe God as powerful, I mean, there are hundreds of them. Here's three of them. Psalm 11, 4, we just read, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. There is none more powerful than Yahweh. He breathes and our hearts start beating. He controls the wind and the waves. We merely accept them. Nothing is outside his hand and almost everything is outside of ours. And so what does he choose to do with the universe in his hands? He bends and uses those hands to wash his friend's feet. Here he shows us where power lies. In one of the greatest poems in all the library of scripture, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God empties himself and thus repurposes power. The power of God does not make sense to us because in our world, we typically and primarily see power used in the name of self-interest. We rarely ever see power used to disadvantage oneself for the sake of another. But that is what God does because that is who God is. Psalm eleven seven: for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 33, 5, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. So we need the anchors in the ground to stand firm on a theology of justice. That God is the ultimate bearer of justice. He is the one who defines what is just because he is justice. He is ruler and authority. He is king and lord. He is perfect and holy. He is sovereign and judge. He is set apart. We serve him, his purposes, and his ways. But if we merely have a theology of justice, which is what we believe about God and his world that does not inform an ethic of justice, which is how we live in light of that belief, then who cares? So I want us to consider something for a moment. Why is it that if a seven-year-old punched you in the face, he should be punished? But if you punched a seven-year-old in the face, you should be jailed. Or why is it that when we see two men fighting, we know that it's wrong? But when we see a man fighting a woman, we feel it's more than wrong, but unjust. The answer seems fairly straightforward. Power. It's because we see power used in an abusive way, which is what makes the way God uses his power so odd to us. Why would God bend so low to do something so small as to serve his friends and even his enemies? 
Because the point of power is to serve. The point of power is actually sacrifice. So in light of that, what do we need to live justly and righteously? How do we live in an unjust world justly? Two things. Risk and hope. Risk and hope. Risk. I'm just going to read a few scriptures. I could pull a hundred more, but I want us to consider something. Deuteronomy 16.20 Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Proverbs 29.7 The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Zechariah 7.9 This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Isaiah 1.17 Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Who will care about our God if they do not experience a tinge of his justice through us? Rich Validis is a pastor in New York City, and he says, For far too many, justice is seen as an optional supplement to evangelism and mission. But we need to seriously consider justice as one of the means of evangelism. Many in this generation, meaning our generation, could care less about our good news if it's not good news leading to a just world. Many could care less about our good news if it's not good news leading to a just world. No one will care about our theology if they do not experience our love and pursuit of justice. And the only way they are going to know if he is just is if they see his people, empowered by his spirit, beginning to disadvantage themselves for the sake of others. Who are we pursuing that has been maligned? And who are we in relationship with that has been mistreated? What types of risk are we taking that are going to seem strange and surprising to our neighbors? Like, who are we advocating for? I mean, the amount of injustice in our city alone is staggering. We have to take an inventory and invite the Spirit to speak to us. Where are the dark places in our community where strongholds exist, but we'd rather play it safe? The evil one does not fight fairly, and every fight we pick is a battle worth picking, but it will almost always cost us something. To be Jesus' followers means picking spiritual battles and petitioning to God in the spiritual realm and acting like he is real in the physical realm. If we pray about injustice and never move our bodies, we'll grow cold and stop praying. And if we only act and never pray, our efforts are in vain and mean nothing. We must pair advocacy to the Father on behalf of our neighbors and sacrifice ourselves on behalf of our neighbors. This is what it means to see the image of God in the face of our community. Seeking out justice is making my neighbor's problems my problems. It is taking the weight and the frustration and the issues of those around me upon myself. Being a disciple of Jesus means bearing the burdens of his image bearers. I want to be a church that takes 
risks. That doesn't play it safe. I don't want us to be comfortable. Nothing about the fight for biblical justice and equity in our city for our neighbors is comfortable. It's actually very uncomfortable, and it's in the discomfort where the Spirit of God speaks and moves. When I was explaining a difficult situation to a buddy of mine a couple years ago and how I just kept getting this very uncomfortable pit in my stomach, and I knew what I should do, but I was feeling very uncomfortable about doing it, and I knew it wasn't going to go well, and I had a feeling it wasn't going to end well, it just felt like someone was constantly punching me in the gut. And he said this, Learn to love that feeling. It is an invitation of the Spirit. Learn to love your gut tightening. (laughs) It is the invitation of God further into his kingdom. Risk. Let's be a people who take risk for the kingdom and the king. The safest place we can be is in the loving hands of God. And the loving hands of God compels us to live lives of risk. Hope. Justice is a long, long game. It is so easy to become so callous to all the evil around us. We grow numb. We start to lose our sense of pain. Our spiritual nervous system begins to die off. And when we look around and we see the evil when we move on and we're unmoved and we're unshaken and we're not stirred to prayer and petitioning for God to act, then we are the ones who are moving away from the very heart of God. God deeply cares about these things and we become deeply uninvested in them. Some of us need to learn what it means to really lament and honest, open conversation with God himself, an expression of frustration mixed with a petitioning that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. God desires intimate relationship with you, which means he does not wish for you to hide the parts of you that you think are off-putting. That is cleaned up Christianity, that is cleaned up religion, not honest Christianity. Some of us need to learn to lament. Open up the book of Psalms and read the open, honest, heartfelt, gut-wrenching prayers that the psalmist prays and learn to pray that way. Some of us need to learn what it means to really lean in. We don't hold on to much hope because we are far enough removed from any evil or injustice happening in our city, that it all feels like numbers and faces with no names and no stories and no meaning for us. And if the last year has taught me anything, it's that leaning in requires us to have hope. Why else would we lean in? And hope stirs us to lean in, right? So proximity to people produces hope in us, and hope in us stirs us to proximity. Micah Edmondson is a pastor in Nashville. He says this, Complicity says, Meet oppression with love, but not justice. Meaning we care with words, but no action. Retaliation says, 
meet oppression with justice, but not love. We want vengeance, but not wholeness. Hope says meet oppression with a love that pursues justice. We want Jesus to be honored and people to flourish. And we believe Jesus wants that too. We all care about justice. It's just that all of us care about selective justice. We have justice issues that we are passionate about and justice issues that we could care less about. And the call of Jesus' followers is not to be constantly overwhelmed with all the issues so as to become numb and paralyzed. The call of a Jesus follower is to, is to be constantly aware that the world needs redeeming and that God is inviting me to play a small, meaningful part in it. So looking evil in the face, both very personally and very globally, requires that we have hope. Rooted, anchored hope. Do we actually believe in a God of justice? Do we believe that God is setting the world right side up? Do we believe that he will judge all the evil in the world? Because if not, we will become super cynical, believing there is no such thing as real justice that will ever happen. We will become apathetic, we will decrease in our compassion, and we will increase in our carelessness. In essence, if we do not believe in a God of justice, we will cease to be a people of love. If we do not believe in a God of justice, we will cease to be a people of love. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian, and he says this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently-like fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is is love. Victims of injustice and victims of vile evil have no hope if we do not believe in a God of justice. There is no hope for victims without a judge. The world becomes nihilism. You do what you want to do with no repercussions and no consequences and no justice and no sense of morality. I cannot live in a world like that. I cannot live in a world believing that God will hold off his perfect anger forever. 
The world is overwhelmed by injustice. The world can be a beautiful place, but it is more often a cruel place. So as I wrap up, I want to address two types of people in the room. The first is those of us who have experienced injustice. There is one thing, really one person waiting for you on the other side of injustice. His name is Jesus. The one thing he offers you is the thing that he'll shoot himself. His face, his grace, his smile, his heart open to you, open for you. You are not what has been done to you. You are not the sum of how you were treated. You have inherent dignity wired into you. And the blood of Jesus covers all shame that you feel. His only ask is that you would open yourself to him. Receive his blessing. Receive his love. He not only welcomes all that you are and all that has been done to you, but he has taken it upon himself. He is angry about what has been done to you, but not in the same way that we are angry. Actually, in a much different way, in a holy, perfect motives. Knowing the world is being remade into a perfect city where what you have experienced has no category because it doesn't exist. God identifies himself with people who have been treated like trash. He arrived at the bottom of the social rung. He experienced an unjust trial where he was slandered and mischaracterized. He experienced unjust treatment by the state and by individuals where he was literally beaten within an inch of his life. And then he was publicly executed in the most inhumane, undignified way possible. A sham of a courtroom stripped of all dignity, unclothed, and a murder that was premeditated and straight from hell itself. And if that was the end of the story, there is no justice for you. There is no end game. There is no hope. There is meaningless evil that will never be punished. There is no redeeming of your story because there will be no resurrection of his. But he did rise. And his resurrection is yours. He does not shame you or balk at your shame. Rather, he has become your shame. Romans 10, 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. The voice of shame that whispers in the day while you're trying to get work done and screams at night when you're attempting to fall asleep is not the voice of the Spirit of God. The accuser shames. The deceiver shames. God welcomes. And the lion that is prowling around seeking to devour you will be devoured by the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the second group in this room are those of us who have been complicit in injustice. You know, the beauty of God is that he would come to release the shame of those who have experienced gross evil. But the scandal of God is that he would come to forgive those of us who have been complicit in evil, in sin. It doesn't make sense what kind of man screams from the throes of being betrayed by his own people, Father, forgive them. 
There is only one God who has entered into time and space, taken on the form of a human, been killed by the people that he came for, and extended forgiveness to them. No other God does that. We are all needy and negligent. We are all sufferers and sinners. We are victims, and yet we are villains. We have been objectified, and we objectify. We are made in the image of God, and we have the same genes as our ancestors who turned their back on him. We desire justice in the world, but if we're honest, we're probably less about justice for us. We're much more about mercy, which is why we desperately, desperately need Jesus. If those who have experienced great injustice need freeing from shame, then those who have been complicit in injustice need exoneration from guilt. On the cross, Jesus becomes our shame, and on the cross, Jesus takes our guilt. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The key word there, whoever. Whoever. Anyone can get in on this. All are welcome. That's the scandal. All are invited. That's what makes it both glorious and extremely uncomfortable. God himself experienced the greatest injustice in all the world, and his injustice has been repurposed for our redemption. God disadvantaged himself for the sake of another, for us. God is Sadaqah. Perfect righteousness, making right relationship between us and God and between one another. And God is mishpat, perfect justice. Jesus treated the vulnerable and the outcast in such a way that restored dignity and voiced that God would take up their cause. He used his power by going low, not treating people like charity, but like the image bearers that they are. And now, because we are inexplicably in right standing with God because of Jesus, we now get to replicate and embody and risk our lives for the sake of other, other people, particularly those who are vulnerable. Our risky obedience and our supernatural hope provide an alternative story where evil and sin do not have the final word. Rather, a world remade, ruled by a generous monarch, a righteous judge, will rule a city where injustice and evil are thrown into the pit of death, where they will never be dug up again. There is a day coming where we live free of the sin that has been done to us and exonerated from the sin that we have committed before God and towards each other. Both of those are scandalous. It doesn't make sense. It truly is stranger than fiction. Which is why we hold on to it. Let's be a people that point to that day. Citizens of that kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.